Fear not. The bulletin looks a lot longer than the sermon will actually be. So I know that when you look at that piece of paper, you wonder if the font size had to be adjusted. I have been told, affirmed, that it was not. So uh, it all fits. So uh, don't worry. We are going to dive into um, a very practical topic. Now, you may think practical and Brian don't go in the same sentence. I know that. I tend to be a little more heady, a little more high-level, big picture. We're going to get into the details towards the end of the sermon. And even though this was supposed to be all about details, I'm probably still going to be big picture for most of it. I just, I can't help it. It's how I am. But let me kind of reset our thinking where we are. We're in part five of a series. It is important to know at this juncture what's been said so far. We won't cover it all, but to get the basic idea, we're talking about sanctification. Now, that's a big, scary term um, that is never used outside of a church setting. In fact, I don't think I've ever, ever heard that word used in any context other than a religious one. But if you've grown up in the church, you probably know this term, sanctification. It's a scary word. All it means is after you were saved, you go through a process of your character molding to that of the character of Christ. You become more like Jesus, Christ-likeness. You start to imitate Him. And not just outward behavior change, but inward heart change. Your character molds. The Bible is very concerned, not with what you do on the outside, but what you are on the inside. And of course, that has what you do on the outside implications. We have a tendency, as Christians, especially evangelicals in this country, to emphasize the outside stuff and become modern-day Pharisees instead of emphasizing the inside stuff, so much so that sometimes even when we say the word sanctification, we think it means we're growing in the outside stuff. We're, we're, getting, we're doing more good works. We're becoming better people, more religious, more righteous people. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about sanctification. We're talking about you Changing your heart's desires. If you think about sin, how many times do you sin because you want to? I would venture to say every time. That's just how we do it. We, we desire these things. We desire the wrong things. And what we're asking, what we're saying as a Christian worldview is that you need to want different things. You need to want Jesus more than you want the world. Well, that's an internal change. How does someone change their desires. It's often like, you know, no matter how many times I go to Wendy's, I want a Baconator. No matter what I should have, I want it. They are good. Especially, did you know that you can get the triple with bacon and get them to add a patty? You can do this. It's a one-pound Baconator. No one should eat a one-pound Baconator. That's stupid. Have I done that? I'm not going to answer that question, Okay. There's this, like, you ask, anybody already felt a New Year's resolution? Or did you just reach a point in your life where I don't even bother making them anymore? All right, that's where I'm at, okay. It's because we know these outside behavior changes are very difficult because the reality is, is I just still want the Baconator. I like eating, uh, whatever it is, whatever the thing. It's hard to change because I actually enjoy the thing I'm trying to change. But what we're asking in sanctification is not for you to change the outside, but just to quit wanting the Baconator. Quit wanting the world. Want Jesus more. And we have to stop and say, well, how could I possibly change at that deep of a level? 
do I just wake up one day and say, you know what? I want Jesus more than I want everything else. You can say that all day long, but the reality is that's probably not true. You wake up this morning and you can say it, I want Jesus more, I want Jesus more, but you don't. How can we grow? How can we change? And that's what means of grace are. It's what we're asking. That's the question. The answer, how can we change? The Bible has given us, given us means, tools, strategies for how we change on the inside as people. So we've gone through four sermons so far in this series. What are those things that we can do? The Bible's given us. What tools can we use for our sanctification, for that inward most heart level, core of my being transformation? What tools has God given me? We've put them in two categories. Historically, they've usually divided among these two categories. So whatever branch of church history you go to, you can almost always find this distinction between the objective So outside of you, you kind of think the church as a whole does this work versus subjective, which is something I can do in my private home, in my prayer closet, so to speak. So we started with the corporate ones. Those are formally called the means of grace. We gave three. There were three things you could participate in that biblically prescribed medicine that will change your soul. Whether you feel like it's working or not, it is doing something in you if you participate in these things. You remember what the three were, and I'll give them to you in the order we studied them. Number one, we talked about, did we do baptism first? Did we? I don't even remember what order we did them in now. But we've done these three in whatever order. Um, we talked about baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then preaching the Word. Those are the three objective means of grace. We come, the Word is the, the, the foremost of them. We do this together um, regularly. We listen to the Word preached. This has been part of Christianity from its very early days. We studied this. We've talked about how baptism is not just a, a, a sacrament that the individual experiences, but the entire congregation gets to participate in every single baptism that we have as a church. And when you've been here for a baptism, you know what that feels like. There's a joy and excitement, a glory to the Lord that we get to taste when that happens. And every time we take communion, we are reminding ourselves of the accomplished, completed work of Christ. These are the objective, sometimes they're called sacraments, or in more of a Baptist tradition, we prefer the word ordinance. But the word sacrament, I like, because sacrament is the Latin word for the biblical term mystery. There's a mystery to this. There's some mystical work that happens where I come into union with Christ. And so we can say baptism, preaching the word, and the Lord's Supper are all sacramental in that way. Somehow it produces that change in me. Now we're transitioning today into the subjective means of grace, and they're usually not called that. Instead, they are called disciplines. You've probably heard this term before, spiritual disciplines, perhaps habits, Um, If you like reading old books, you'd see these things called asceticism, which to me that word is just awkward and hard to say, so that's the last time you'll hear me try it, because I think I got it right the first time and it won't happen twice. So they're called that, and we're going to move forward with spiritual discipline. So let's talk about the idea of these personal spiritual disciplines. We're going to start heady and hopefully get a lot more practical as we move forward in the sermon. So first heading there in your outline is the idea of of spiritual disciplines. And if you want to scratch out disciplines, just call them tools. These are tools that we can use to see transformation happen in our life. So let's talk about what these tools are doing, how they work, 
what's happening in us, how they have any function whatsoever. So I'm going to start with this definition, and we're going to look at some scriptures and work this out throughout the Bible in several different contexts. So number one, through spiritual discipline, we engage our hearts and minds, so we engage our hearts and minds with the person of Christ. So the idea here is that my heart needs to come into contact with Jesus. So think about Jesus in the scriptures, in his earthly ministry. Do you remember the story, and we used this the first week, of the lady who all she was trying to do was touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Do you remember that story? She, she's going through the crowd, she touches the garment, and that's the whole thing where Jesus stops, I felt power go out. It's this kind of interesting, cryptic almost scenario. But what happens to her from touching the garment, the edge of Jesus' garment? Do you remember what happened? She was healed completely. And so there's this way that her contact with Jesus transformed her physical body. So we're just taking a spiritual analogy from that and saying, we want to come into contact, just touch Jesus in some spiritual way. That's going to produce change in me. It's like, if I can just get near him, if I can get close to Christ, I can be transformed. That's our picture. So all of these spiritual disciplines are the ways we lay hold of Jesus' garment. If I can just touch, if I can just get close, how do I get that proximity to Jesus? That's what we mean with spiritual disciplines. Now, let's ground this because with that definition, if we stopped there, we could run wild with this and come up with some pretty interesting things. I want to kind of put a, um, I don't want to put it in a box. That sounds a little wrong. I want to put some, uh, Bumpers. Have you ever gone bowling? You put the bumpers up? All right, I'm going to put the bumpers on the lane. All right, that's my goal here. Is, is there, can we use anything to grow in Christ? I would say, mm, no. Um, there's some parameters. There's a framework. There, let's put up the bumpers and think about what we can do, what needs to frame how we use these tools. So here's what I'm going to give you. The gospel shapes our spiritual disciplines. Let me show you this. Grab your Bible and open to the New Testament book of Colossians. New Testament book of Colossians. So as you're turning there, I'll give you a few points. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is writing Colossians. It's kind of a mirror letter to Ephesians. If, in fact, if you read them together, you'll find that they're very similar. One is kind of a generic letter. One's a precise letter. Colossians is written to a precise group, whereas Ephesians is more of a general general letter to any church. He's writing to this church. He's been rejoicing about the work that's happening there. And he makes this passing comment in chapter 2, verse 6, that actually has profound theological significance. So let's look at it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now think through what he said. So the way you receive Jesus is the way you walk in Jesus. So in other words, you get saved when what is shared with you? The gospel. You hear the gospel, you respond to the gospel, and you are saved. And Paul says, well, there you go. That's the sanctification process. In a nutshell, it's not that you get re-saved every day, but it is that you walk through those same steps every day. So think about what happens in the gospel. Step one. And someone's conversion is always that Christ is presented. So, number one, your first blank under that heading, 
by presenting Christ to our souls. We preach Christ. You see Christ. Hearing the gospel is about having Christ presented to you. So we see Christ, and then how do we respond to Christ? Faith and repentance. That's what salvation looks like. We see Christ presented, then we respond. Repentance, of course, means turning from the world to Christ, and to Christ means faith. We trust Him with our lives. So let's just illustrate this a little bit biblically. So if you're in Colossians, back up a few pages. We're going we're gonna to jump in a lot of spots this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, and we've referenced this before, but I want to really drive this point home to make sure you understand how spiritual disciplines and the gospel all relate together. So here we go. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now in the New Testament, when the apostle Paul is writing, when he says Lord, he's talking about a very particular person. Let's see who the nerds are. Who is that? Jesus specifically. So when he says the Lord, he means Jesus. So when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now where the, the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So what produces the transformation in that verse? Just seeing Jesus. You have to see Jesus without the veil, so turn to the Lord, that's repentance. The veil is removed, you see Jesus for who He is, you see Christ, it produces transformation. This is the work of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, we're not trying to give some canned set of statements that will get someone to pray a prayer, and now we've converted them and they're Christians. That's not how the gospel is ever shared in the scriptures. It's always there, this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. This is what he is telling you to do. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. People hear about that person. They spiritually see the person of Christ, and it does a transforming work in their heart. We call that repentance and faith. Well, Spiritual disciplines are just us walking through that same pattern over and over and over again daily. See more Jesus, have more transformation. So if you like formulas, there it is. It's no more complicated than that. More experience with Jesus, more face time with Jesus is more transformation in your heart. So these spiritual disciplines are ways for you to walk through the gospel over and over and over again. That's the goal here. I want to walk through the gospel, see Christ presented, and then I repent, and that repentance and faith leads to me walking in newness of life, newness of life. Let me show you another really cool example of this in Scripture. So still in the New Testament, head towards the back and go to 1 John, 1 John. We're going to pick up in 1 John in verse 9, we're going to go through a few verses. 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 9. And you probably have heard this part of the verse. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what's John assuming about all people in that verse? You are all sinners. We, I make sure I'm in that. I'm not in any way excluding myself from the comment. We are all sinners. Sinners, but chapter 2, verse 1, remember the chapters and verses are added later. So for John, he's just going from one thought to the next. My little children, I'm writing these things to you in order that you might not sin. You're all sinners. I'm trying to get you not to sin, though. 
That's how the verse reads. However, but if anyone does sin, so just think how we would say, if you sin, Jesus will forgive you. You're all sinners, but I'm trying to get you not to sin. But when you do sin, you see how he's working this out. You're going to sin. He doesn't want you to. You can be forgiven when you sin. He doesn't want you to do it, but you're going to do it. So here's what happens. If anyone does sin, end of verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now hear this. The very first thing John wants you to do when you realize you've sinned, it's not even repent. It's not even confess. What's the very first thing he wants to pop into your mind? Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. He's the righteous one. Verse 2, he is the, now I love this word. It's one of my favorite words. Y'all say it with me. He is the propitiation. Yes, you have never used that word outside of church. I know this. We don't use this word. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. So all of God's anger against sin is taken away in Christ. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You see the progression there? It's very significant that you follow the progression in that order. You get this order wrong, you have a false gospel. We sin, Jesus is the propitiation, then we obey his commandments. You see the pattern here? This is the gospel over and over and over again. He's not writing to new converts here. He's not writing to lost people who are getting saved. This is the regular daily habits of the regular ordinary Christian. You sin, Jesus. You're forgiven. You walk in new life. This is the pattern. You never graduate from that pattern until death. You will constantly follow this exact same pattern. So Christ is presented. We repent in faith, walk in newness of life every time. All of these tools are designed to help you do that in some way. So when you're thinking about prayer, when you're thinking about fasting, we'll talk about even meditation and scripture memory, and we'll talk about even the contemplative, that word is so hard for me, the contemplative life, and how we think about the work of Christ in us. If it is not gospel-focused, we're misusing the tool. This is how the tool is designed to be used. Now, I'm going to give a, a warning at this point, and then we'll apply the warning more specifically in a little bit, spiritual disciplines fail us when we make them into works. Spiritual disciplines fail us when we make them into works. Now, I grew up in what I would call a very typical, very traditional Southern Baptist church, and I'm still Southern Baptist now, so I'm not like hating on them. It's just we don't do everything the same way that, you know, maybe a typical traditional Southern Baptist church would. But I grew up in a church where we had the offering envelopes. Anybody have this shared experience? I came to Sunday school. We had the offering envelope, and I would bring my dollar. It wasn't really my dollar. My parents gave me the dollar to give. But I get what they were doing. You know, it's just trying to form a practice in me. And on that envelope, I would put my name, and then there would be some check boxes. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And among those check boxes that I read my Bible every day this week, check. Come on, guys. I was the elder brother Pharisee. That's just, that's who I grew up as, okay? I'm like, check. Yes, I did. Did I, um, did you bring your Bible today? Check. Yes, of course. Come to church without a Bible. 
wow. <laughs> you know, but you'd go through these checks, and of course, you don't want to have any of them empty, right? Because an empty check means, well, you're not being a very good Christian. You see what I'm saying? What am I doing, though, by checking those points that way? I'm making it a currency. My relationship with God is now based on how many boxes I check, how well I do these things. I start keeping tabs. Man, it it happens, especially when I say especially kids, that's not true. It just happens across the board, whatever age you are. You're going to look over at someone else's checkboxes. I got more than him. I'm good. You know, no, not how this, if we use any of these tools to grow in our self-righteousness, then we're still molding our character, but in the wrong direction. So I am saying if you misuse these tools, you're worse off. So this is important, that you use the tool the right way. Another way we do it, and we're not usually as vocal about this, is we think of these tools, reading my Bible and prayer and even coming to church or writing that check, we think of those acts as being the propitiation for my sins. Oh, I was really bad this week. I did that thing. I'm going to read my Bible a few extra times. I'm going to read my Bible as some therapy. I'm going to pray as a therapeutic way of alleviating my guilt. I don't have to feel bad about my sin because I did these other acts. That's penance. It's not biblical. It's not what we see here. It's not what we're doing. We want to avoid the spiritual disciplines in that manner. So if you think about it, and this passage is actually terrifying, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to turn there, you can, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus very directly discusses that there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, on the last day, they show up to heaven, Jesus has come, manifested in His glory, and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great things in your name. You know what he says, though. What's he say to that group of people? Depart from me, I never knew you. Well, because it's about the relationship with Christ, not the works. My whole goal here is to spend time with Jesus, the mystical union of Christ. That is my sanctification goal, not to produce a big, long list of good works. I want to know Jesus. In fact, and we're studying this on Wednesday nights, Galatians. I won't go there now, but The whole content of Galatians is about them adding works back into their religious life, particularly in their case, circumcision. Paul says in chapter 5, you add those back in, you have fallen from grace. It's either or. It's either by grace or it's by works. If we make it by works, we break the whole system. So if we get the order wrong, so remember, sin, Jesus, then new life. We have a tendency, though, to say, oh, new life, that's why Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me because I'm good. And then we have this feedback loop of Pharisee development. That's not sanctification. That is Pharisication? I don't know. We'll make up a word. You follow what I'm saying. All right, so I'm taking way too long on that point. Let's move forward. So so that's just the idea of spiritual disciplines. Now we're going to spend the rest of this time talking about specifically how you use the Bible, your copy of the Bible, as a tool for sanctification. So we'll talk prayer another day. We'll talk about meditation. We'll talk about fasting. Today, we're going to talk about how you use this copy, your copy of God's Word to produce sanctification in your life. So very important, you should see the head. The heading of that section is the Word of God is the primary tool for spiritual discipline. 
It is number one. No question about it. The Word is number one in your spiritual disciplines. It's, without any comparison, the most important tool in the bucket, in the toolbox. The Word itself is the most important tool. Let me show you why. Go to 2 Timothy. You probably know this verse, but we're going to get really nerdy about this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Some of you already know exactly what this verse says. 2 Timothy 3, 16. And I want you to see this. One. I'll give you a second to get there. If you have, have a Bible with you. 2 Timothy 3, 16. The Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy, giving him some final words. And I, I love chapter 4 where he's kind of giving him this closing, uh, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. This is right before he says that. He's ending another thought. And he says something very important to our daily life. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So I have breathed out by God. Some of you may have inspired. Paul made up a Greek word here. The word he used wasn't a real word. He made one up, kind of like the Pharisaication. I don't know, I've already changed the word. Except, you know, we have it written down so we can get it right every time. And his word was, wasn't that complicated. He took the word breathe, and he took the word God in Greek, and just smashed them together into one word. So all scripture is God breathed. Now what do we mean when we say God breathed? We think of him speaking, right? The idea of breath. God has spoken. All scripture is God breathed. Now let me get really nerdy. Let's, let's think this through. So if something is spoken, that's different than written down, right? So I could say something, it's a different thing altogether to text something or to write it in an email, but look at what it says. It says all scripture, now the Greek word for scripture, you actually know it's the word graph. When you think about graph, um, graphy in this case, what, what do you think of when I say the word graph? Writing. You think, I think of math immediately, and you, you, had to, you had an equation here, but you had to graph it out on paper, had to make an image, display something. This is the word for written. Now follow this. It's the written scripture that is God-breathed. Let the reality of that sink in. The word, all scripture, is God-breathed. The word God-breathed is God-breathed. You have the very word of God, word for word, in your hand. You say, well, it's an English translation. God's Word has always been translated into the language of the people. So much so that even in the New Testament, when the language changed from Hebrew to Greek, when they quote the Old Testament, predominantly they quote the Greek version of the Old Testament, showing us that they viewed that just as much Scripture as the Hebrew original, which is why I can boldly say your English copy of the Bible is God-breathed. Think about this. You ever want to know, like, People do this all the time. They open the Bible and they want to hear from God. I'm just trying to hear from God. And I read my Bible all day, but I never heard from God. It's like, yeah, you did. Every single word is breathed out by God himself. This is what he said. Verbatim, verbal word, inspiration. This is God's word. You can talk to him. You can hear his voice literally in the scriptures. This is his actual Testimony. So the Word of God is the primary tool for spiritual discipline. Furthermore, your knowledge and experience in the Word 
empowers and amplifies all other disciplines. Your knowledge of this book amplifies and empowers, I just changed the order, empowers and amplifies all other disciplines. If you know the Bible, you pray better. If you know the Bible, you fast better. If you know the Bible, you meditate better. If you know the Bible, I'd say you memorize better, but that's like incredibly redundant, right? So it's always the scripture that empowers everything. So I'll go as far as to say this. Even sermons on Sunday will mean more to you if you know the Bible more. If you have a better understanding of the whole scriptures, you'll hear more in any one given sermon than you would have heard before. Have you ever watched the movie? And I'm, I'm terrible. People don't like talking to me about their favorite movies because I always criticize them. I, if I criticize your movie, it's because I like it. Right? It's just how I process through things. But if I watch something, the first time I watch it, the second time I watch it harder, you know what I'm talking about? And then the third time, it's like, oh, this is related to that, and that connects here. Why do you see more every time you watch it? Because you know more. The more you know the whole story, the more you pick up on the little stories. So even just knowledge of Scripture makes sermons better. So if you don't like my sermon, it's your fault. No, okay. <laughs> Not where I'm going with that. Not really. That's a joke. Um, kind of. Seriously, though, if you do know the Bible better, it will make any sermon better because you have a bigger framework to put the whole thing in. But if we're going to see that applies to prayer, everything. We know the Word, then we will understand it all better. Just illustrate this biblically for you. I want to ground this in Scripture. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 5, and Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. You may remember that often when Jesus is dealing with that group of people in the Bible, there's friction. It's like he gets more annoyed at that group than anybody else. He goes to hang out with sinners, and it's like he's cool with them. He gets around these religious people, and there's immediately a fight. Well, we're going to see part of the reason is because they should know better. So here's, we're just going to pick up in the middle of the context here. John 5, 39. Jesus is talking to these guys. He's, he's kind of frustrated with them. They don't believe him. Uh, they want witnesses and testimony and all this stuff. But he says this in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, with that in mind, read verse 46. For if you believed Moses, so he's talking to people who read the Old Testament. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. See the connection. Knowing Moses made them know Jesus better, or in this case, it made their condemnation greater. Because knowing Moses should have made them know Jesus better, but they didn't. And so he's even more frustrated. He's like, you've, you've got the tool. You have the tool at your disposal, and you completely miss it because they're misusing the tool. And they're molding their character into more self-righteousness instead of molding their character into Christ-likeness. That's what's happening. All right, but let's flip over. John chapter 6, for me, it's just one page over. Partway, or towards the end of that chapter, we're going to pick up in verse 66. Now, this is that time. Where Jesus, he's got the crowd, and sometimes you, when you read Jesus in John's gospel through a modern lens, it's like, what in the world is he doing? 
Because we sit here and we think through pragmatic ways to, to grow a crowd, to keep everybody happy, to, to draw in the numbers, and Jesus is essentially working in exactly the opposite manner. He makes the statement that's really strange, and then people are leaving. We're going to pick up in verse 66, though. So a lot of people have turned away from Jesus. It says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They want Jesus. He's the one that's got the word. He's the one with this word of eternal life. They want Jesus. That's why they're staying. Jesus couldn't turn them away. No matter what they did, what he did, because they want him. In fact, Jesus there is emphasizing the difference between the the group that's following and the true followers, the ones who want Jesus. Here's what I'm saying. So when we learn the scriptures, we should do it out of a desire to know Christ. That's why we're going in there. We can come up with so many reasons to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible so I sound smarter in my Bible study. No. I'm going to read the Bible so I feel more righteous and better about myself. No. I'm going to read the Bible so I can meet Jesus face to face. It's everything. That's what we're doing when we study the Scripture. So let me give you some incredibly practical tips for how to do this. And some of this may be a little contrary to what you are probably or usually taught. So some practical tips for growing in the discipline of the Word. So we're actually going to talk about several other ways to use the Word. I want to focus in on one particular role, and that is just plain and simply reading. So first and foremost, let me say this. We have more access to Scripture than any group of people at any point in history has ever had, period. So talk about culpability. You're more culpable for your lack of reading the Word than any other group of people who have ever lived have been because you, not only do you have it translated into your language, you have multiple options when you go to the bookstore. You can get it at an easy reading level. You can get it in a complicated reading level. You can get it on your iPhone Anywhere, anytime, if you have internet access, you have access to God's Word. You probably, in your home, have more than one copy of the Bible. Chances are, each member of your family in your home has more than one copy of the Bible. In this room, there are dozens of copies of the Bible. We have unprecedented access. So access is not our problem. It's our motivation is our problem. So if you're going to Make a decision and say, right now you're saying, okay, I'm going I'm to read my Bible better. I'm going to spend more time this year reading God's Word. I'm going to make that a new habit. I'm going to make that a discipline. I'm going to do that with the desire to meet Christ, to know Christ. Here's how you can do that more effectively. Number one, read the Bible in large chunks quickly rather than in small segments slowly. Here's what almost always happens. You start a reading plan and you read one or two verses. And tomorrow you read one or two verses. And tomorrow you read one or two verses. You've probably been trained that way. That's, that's, that doesn't make any sense. You would never do that with anything else. In all of your life, you would never watch a movie in 10-minute segments. Ever. And if you do, I I, we need to talk. Something's wrong. You do not do that. Ever. What do you do when you sit down and watch a movie? How much of the movie do you typically watch in one sitting? 
the whole movie, the whole thing. You might take a break. Let's say it's, it's Lord of the Rings. I recognize the, the correct version, the extended version, four hours each. Maybe you'll pause it once and go to the bathroom. Even that movie, though, you're probably going to watch the whole thing. We always do this. Here's what I'm telling you to do. It's way more important that you read a whole book of the Bible once a week than a little bit of the Bible every day of the week. I'm not telling you not to read your Bible every day. I'd be happy if you read a book of the Bible every day. I'm just telling in terms of importance, have you ever sat down and read a whole gospel? Ever? I mean, if you're in church in the square, maybe during Reformation Month you have. Okay, so like one time a year we do that. We read as much of the Bible as we possibly can, and there's always some resistance to that. If I read that much, I'll miss things. And every year without fail, somebody says, you know, I never noticed. And I'm like, well, apparently we're not missing things. Apparently you're missing things going too slow. Speed it up. Read a whole chunk. Sit down and read all of Mark's gospel in one sitting. It's not going to take you nearly as long as you think. These books aren't big. Now, if you try to read all of Psalms in one sitting, you recognize that. Maybe more difficult, but almost every New Testament book can be read in less than two hours. Some of them in less than 10 minutes. You sit down and read all of the prison letters in 20. Sit down and read large chunks of Scripture quickly rather than slowly. That's going to help you understand it better. And if it makes more sense to you, this happens all the time. People quit reading the Bible because it got boring. The Bible wasn't boring. Your strategy was dumb. Right? Don't use a dumb strategy. <laughs> Read the whole thing. In fact, if you want to read it cover to cover quickly, I strongly encourage you to do that, especially during October, and report that reading. So <laughs> that'll come up later. All right, anyway. Second, learn the complete story of the Bible before you flesh out the details. A lot of times somebody wants, they, they, they come to faith in Christ, they're trying to take this seriously. The first thing they want to do is get down into the nitty-gritty of a book. I'm saying don't. You may not be ready to do that. That's not number one. Number one is you need to be able to take me from Adam to the book of Revelation. In fact, from Adam to today would be useful. And say that God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. They had this opportunity to not eat the fruit, but they ate the fruit. They sinned, introduced death and sin and corruption in the world. They get kicked out of the garden. They leave the garden, they populate the world, but sin is taking over in a very powerful way. God destroys that world, saves Noah and his descendants, who then repopulate the world through the Noahic covenant. God promises not to destroy them again. And after a few centuries, God calls Abraham to be his covenant people, the first person in that descent, and he makes that promise to Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, and Jacob's 12 children become the 12 tribes of Israel. They sell their younger brother into slavery, moves the whole family eventually to Egypt. While they're in Egypt, they become slaves eventually, and then we get the whole book of Exodus where God calls Moses to lead the people out against the power and might of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai where they receive God's law, the Mosaic covenant. They immediately break that covenant, have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they go across the Jordan into the promised land where they try to take over. They're trying to be faithful for like one generation and they start being ruled by judges and you see absolute chaos unfold among God's people because they're not following God's way. And then God sends them a king and we get Saul first, but then we get this true king, King David, who may have a lot of problems, but he follows the Lord. He's faithful to the one true God. And anybody who follows that same pattern is going to have life and blessing instead of curse. But his son Solomon, who's supposedly the wisest to ever live, invites idolatry back into the kingdom. Even though he's a wise man, does good political decisions, he spiritually neglects the kingdom, invites idolatry, divides the kingdom. 
So his next son, Rehoboam, does not do a good job. They split immediately into north and south. The northern kingdom falls into idolatry immediately, and they start worshiping a false calf. They call Yahweh, and God starts sending judgment on them, eventually destroys them with the kingdom of Assyria. The southern kingdom does a little better for a little bit longer. They're following David's line. They're trying to be faithful to that lineage, and they're off and on with their faithfulness to the Lord, but eventually they succumb to the same problem of idolatry. God sends Babylon to destroy them, to teach them to follow him alone. They take them into exile, where God's people have to learn to operate apart from the temple, apart from the holy land. They have to become God's people, and they start to emphasize the book, which is a foretaste of what will happen in the church era when we emphasize the book. But God eventually sends them back home after Persia takes over Babylon. They go home, and there they rebuild their temple. They rebuild Judaism, so to speak, and it becomes just as much word-centric as it is temple-centric during this period. And the prophets come saying, the Messiah's coming. He's about to be here. A messenger will come soon. We skip a few years, and John the Baptist shows up on the scene preaching this ministry that Jesus has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. God in flesh coming in power and in glory in his kingdom, but it's not what they expect. Instead, he comes as a humble servant, one who would be chastised, one who would be beaten, ultimately killed at the hands of the Jews and the Romans because they didn't understand or receive the Messiah. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But on that cross, he suffered a death that paid the penalty for our sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead, changing world history, changing the day of worship so that we've come together and worship a risen Savior. But Jesus not only rose from the dead, he eventually ascended to heaven. But on that day, when he ascended, he said, wait, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and you'll receive power. Then you will go out and you will share my word. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus ascends on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. The disciples receive the Spirit of God. They start speaking in tongues, declaring the mighty deeds of God. 3,000 people get saved, baptized, and added to the church that day. And the church starts to grow through this gospel preaching, focusing Jesus Christ, the person, not the works of the law, not any system of ideologies. It's just Jesus. They preached Jesus. People believed in Jesus and got saved. And that has continued for 2,000 years until he returns when he's going to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until you can put that narrative together... Maybe don't slow down and dive in deep yet. Just read. Just go from beginning to end. See the big picture. And all of those stories will make sense when you get in there and you read about who is this judge, Gideon, what's he doing? You know what's going on if you know the big story. So learn the complete story before you get bogged down in the details. Next, learn biblical terminology. You know, I always get frustrated. People are like, we need to dumb church down. Get rid of the churchy lingo. I'm sorry. Every subject you could possibly study has a lingo, and church is the only place where we think the lingo's bad. Lingo's good. You get into sports terms. I hear y'all talk about sports, and I have no idea what's going on most of the time, and it would be silly for me to expect you to use non-sporty terms to talk about sports. That's Talk about mechanics. Mechanics will tell you what's wrong. Dwayne will tell me what's wrong with my car, and I'm like, I don't know half the words you just said, Right? But if I wanted to be a mechanic, should I learn those words? Absolutely I should. You think you should learn the Christian words of Christianity? Of course you should. Yes, learn biblical terminology. 
Know what the word grace means. Know what the word faith means. Get a Bible dictionary. You can find these in most books. Or get it on Amazon. You don't have to go to a bookstore anymore. Just go to Amazon, find a Bible dictionary, buy it. Use it when you're reading the Bible. Learn these biblical terminologies. Next, emphasize reading and studying these books. So this is really nitty-gritty, but I'm going to tell you, if you're going to emphasize understanding the biblical story, these are the most important books you need to learn. I'm not saying other parts of the Bible aren't important. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if you know these, this is like the key pieces of the puzzle. Anybody do puzzles? You know, sometimes you put a piece in the right spot, and then everything starts coming together. These are those key pieces. If you understand the story of Genesis, Exodus, First and Second Samuel, that's the Old Testament, and then Matthew, Acts, and Romans, if you can walk through the basics of those six books, well, technically seven, um, then you've got it. You can work it all out from there. So that's very practical help for how you should read your Bible. Now, let's talk about how to fail. So I gave you that warning at the beginning that uh, spiritual disciplines, if we use them for works, um, can actually produce the wrong character in us. So let me tell you how to fail. Number one, be proud of yourself for reading your Bible every day. You get prideful about reading your Bible every day, you are, you are injecting yourself with a healthy dose of Phariseeism. You're going to become self-righteous and pious, and you're going to start molding your character in the wrong direction. There's a converse to that, though. Don't be mad at yourself for missing your Bible reading. Oh, man, I didn't read the Bible today. I'm a terrible Christian. You only say that because you have a works-based mentality. Bad attitude. If I miss my Bible reading, my thoughts should be, man, I miss Jesus today. I didn't get to hang out with Jesus like I could have. That's a different conversation. It's a sadness over a loss of fellowship, not over a loss of a work. And another way you can do it is emphasize a reading plan over your relationship with God. I don't know if any of you are like this. Uh, I'm I'm terrible about this. If I have check boxes on a sheet of paper, everything comes down to those check boxes. So if I'm supposed to read three chapters in Genesis, then I'm going to check all three chapters because it's going to well up in me that the most important thing I could do today is get that reading plan done. Maybe that's not what you're supposed to do today. Have you ever been reading the Bible and God just got you with something? Then camp out on it. Let him get you. These are tools, and I hate to be cheesy, but tools, not rules. Sorry, it came out. It just happens from time to time. It's even uncomfortable to say, tools, not rules. There you go. Do not get bogged down in the logistics. Just meet Jesus in the Scriptures. So open your Bible as often as you can or as large of an interval as you can. You say, I only got five minutes. Is it worth reading? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Still worth reading your Bible. Don't hear me discouraging Bible reading. Do what you can. Can you do 20 minutes? That's better. Can you do two hours? Maybe less often, but the two hours is going to be glorious. Dive in, get the chunks. All right, we're going to talk about a lot more ways to use the Scripture as we walk through these other disciplines. That's where we are today. So the, the way, the primary tool is the Word of God. Use the Word of God to interact with the gospel. Christ is presented, you repent, and walk in newness of life. Get that order every time. The more you spend time in the Word, the more you'll see that same progression over and over and over again.